Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. Oh, yeah! Welcome back to another episode of Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. I am your host, Viper, the man about tech executive producer of social media here at the IQ. And today's podcast is going to be a little different. It's something that we rarely, if ever, cover here in the creative space. We don't really touch on it much at VidIQ as a whole. But today, we're going to talk about personal finance. Now, this is not the sexiest topic in the world, but creators and just people in general need to have more knowledge and education about personal finance and how to handle money. So in a few minutes, I have a personal finance YouTuber. My dude, Spencer Johnson, is going to be joining me, and we're going to be talking about his rise in the personal finance space on YouTube. We're going to talk about credit cards and how to properly handle and work with credit cards and different things like that. And yeah, obviously, we're going to talk about his YouTube growth. But I feel like this is going to be a very valuable conversation because, again, this is not something that we talk about a lot in the creative space. But sometimes, as my friend Roberto Blake would say, creators, they start a YouTube channel and they end up accidentally becoming entrepreneurs. And when you become an entrepreneur, you really, really, really should have a basic handle of how to work with money. More importantly, make money work for you. So we're definitely going to get into that a little bit with Spencer here on the podcast. And obviously, we'll have some tips and tricks for growth because he's a small creator and he's growing. But I feel like he's done some very good things in the short time he's been on YouTube as it relates to going his channel and collaborating with his fellow creators in the finance space. So without any further ado, let me bring in Spencer and let's roll to the podcast. Welcome back to Tube Talk presented by vidIQ. And this week's special guest is a creator from the personal finance space. I know we don't really get to a lot of uh, educational finance space creators on the podcast, but I went out and I found one because I've taken a lot of great personal interest in the finance space on YouTube myself. So let me bring in my man Spencer Johnson to the podcast. Hey, Spencer, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great, man. How you doing, Viper? I am doing good, man. It's a pleasure to meet you. As I've been going through and watching a lot of the personal finance channels on YouTube, your channel is one that kept coming up over and over again. So I watch your videos. I've gotten great insight and great value out of your videos. So Spencer, I got to ask you first question on the podcast. What brought you to YouTube? Yeah, no, that's awesome. It's cool to hear that you've even had my videos pop up for you because for people that don't know my channel, I am a smaller channel. I just crossed the 5,000 subscriber mark, which is a huge accomplishment for me. But yeah, thank you. But it's still, yeah, it's interesting to see how YouTube pushes it out to people. But yeah, getting started on YouTube. I mean, man, I can go really far back with that, to be honest with you. I started thinking about this recently because, you know, I started this channel that I'm now actually doing full time, as we might talk about later. I've been doing this since March of last year. So March of 2022. But yeah, going back a lot further than that, I used to make kind of like skits and stuff with my friends back in the day. Like I was like eight, nine, 10 years old. We'd be posting them on YouTube and nobody would see them, of course. But you know, I've kind of always been into video creation a little bit. I tried to do some gaming stuff. Like I'd stream some of the games that I'd be, you know, like Call of Duty and stuff like that, that I've played like whenever I was in college. But yeah, personal finance is very different than both of those topics. But I think I really found a liking to it in college. I went to the University of Texas and I studied civil engineering. So once again, not related to personal finance. So it's a really weird paradox that I'm here. But I think 
that's kind of the cool thing about YouTube is it it's a place that allows you to kind of scratch those itches that you have, you know? So personal finance is one of those places that I started diving really heavily into while I was in college. And in doing so, I also started falling in love with the YouTube strategy side of my life as well. So that's kind of like the two kind of conjoined together. And I started my own YouTube channel. And yeah, we're here, you know, a little bit over a year later with 5,000 subscribers. And it's pretty awesome. Wow, that is that is amazing, man. So I want to dig a little deeper into that because personal finance is something that I think most people probably, I mean, obviously know about personal finance a little bit. They know about banking and how to bank and where to bank and all that stuff. But getting into the weeds of personal finance is a whole different universe in and of itself. And this is something that unfortunately we are not really taught in school. Like I know they do offer personal finance in some colleges and maybe even some high school, but by and large, at least when I was growing up back in the day, Personal finance was not something that was even available or offered, and it's not really pushed per se, in my opinion. So I'm curious, how did you find your way into personal finance, given that your major was civil engineering, as you alluded to? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a sad truth that it's not, you know, taught in schools and everything like that. That's actually like part of my about page, like my first line that I actually learned from y'all to really, you know, hone in on as much as I can. Like the mission for my channel is more just teaching people what they didn't learn in school, which is Mm -hmm. personal finance in general. But more specifically, I talk a lot about building credit and like profiting from the credit card game, which not everybody's a big fan of. But that is what I talk about. I guess the way I kind of got introduced to it, specifically the credit card game, since that is what I niche down on pretty hard to get started, was I just had a friend that was in banking. And I was I must have been like 20 years old when I first got into it. He just talked to me about the idea of getting a credit card. And I had just before that not really known about it. I knew my parents had them, but I didn't know exactly how they used them. I grew up in a household with, I had divorced parents. So the single mom household was like kind of ingrained in me from the beginning of like money is not necessarily just, you know, flourishing for, you know, per se. So (laughs) I think for a long time, I've kind of had this like weird side obsession with money and like saving money. And I've always kind of like budgeted my own, you know, personal money. And I think, Also, I've always kind of been a person that's worked since I was really young. Like I've been working since I was about like 15 years old with a family friend's company. So that's how I could do it. I was a little bit younger. But ever since then, I kind of really just found the value in learning how to use money to my advantage rather than it being like a fear in my life. Like it, you know, had been in the past, especially for like my family, as I mentioned. But yeah, and then, you know, once it kind of got into college where you know, I'm paying for my tuition and stuff like that. And I really need to be watching these finances. I started to get into it through YouTube. So I talk about this a lot, but I've never been a person that really grew up watching TV necessarily. Like mm-hmm. I did as a young kid, but I really grew up on YouTube. And right. that's where I found like all of my information, all my entertainment. So yeah, in college, it's just kind of natural for me to follow that path. I started watching Graham Stephan, who's like the biggest, yeah. you know, finance creator that there is. And, uh, you know, for the most part. And really fell in love with his content. He started talking about credit cards. My friend introduced me to credit cards at the same time. And it kind of just all came together at once. And like I said, also getting into the YouTube strategy, it was really just a big, you know, accumulation of things that led me to being here. But yeah, personal finance is just something I think that I've become obsessed with a little bit because I know that a lot of people live in fear of it. And I wanted to be able to find a way to not only understand it for myself in a beneficial way, but be able to also teach it to others in a way that they can understand as well. That is some interesting phrasing that you just used. You said a lot of people live in fear of it. And I think you're right because I feel like, actually, I, I don't feel like the statistics show that I think most Americans at least live paycheck to paycheck. Yep. So if anything happens, that there's an emergency, a lot of people don't even have like $1,000 saved up in an emergency fund. So when you say that people are living in fear of it, that's what we're talking about. Like not having money available if something were to happen or 
let's say something happens to you or you lose your job or something like that, you you don't have it because you're not budgeting your finances correctly. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of that that goes into it. Right. So personal finance is not the sexiest topic out there on YouTube, but there's a bunch of you all in the space. You all definitely made waves because you all have like hundreds of thousands and millions of subscribers. I know you just started a year ago and you're at over 5,000. That's quite the accomplishment to grow a personal finance channel over 5,000 in a year. So how have you gone about growing your channel to 5,000 in a year in a topic that doesn't really get the attention that maybe other more sexier topics get on YouTube? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I realized in the beginning that I wanted to get into the education space, mainly because I was doing so much research on it already myself. And I, like I said, I've grown up not being afraid to get on camera or, you know, talk about what I'm learning and I didn't really have that fear of failure in that way. So it just kind of naturally led me to wanting to share what I was learning with other people. And also my initial thought was maybe a year down the line, I might get monetized and I might start making money from a hobby that I started. And it's just a passion project, right? And then, yeah, lo and behold, it, it turned into something much more successful. Like you said, it's not the sexiest thing in the world, but I really tried to take into account what I was learning from other places. For example, like y'all's channel, vidIQ is a big channel that I started following, as well as Think Media and just these other you know massive YouTube strategy channels. And what I learned pretty quickly is that you could really build a following if you targeted search heavy terms in the very beginning of your channel. Because mm. I understood that for the most part, I'm not going to be necessarily hitting it big on the homepage or the recommended page whenever I have no social proof to my channel, you know, with a couple subscribers or whatever, whenever you first get started, like it's hard right. to really build that following from a recommended or homepage. So I started targeting pretty niche, like search terms as heavily as I could. And that was a way that I found a lot of success. And I also really wanted to devote my channel to being a place where I just documented my journey kind of from scratch in my personal finance and credit card game. And I think that helps a lot too, because it helps build that personal connection with people and also provides me with a ton of ideas for videos to make because I'm literally documenting what I'm doing on a weekly basis. And so the way that I kind of grew in the beginning was, yeah, search heavy terms that I was trying to rank for. And, you know, luckily that's where y'all's tools really came in handy for me. I was so big into using vidIQ for every single thing I did for a long time. And it really does pay off because that search is where you can break free in as a smaller creator. Definitely. Definitely. So as I've watched a lot of personal finance YouTube in the past, I would say month or so, I have noticed that you all are very, very supportive of each other. Now, I would say in general, creators are supportive of each other, just as the nature of YouTube. But you are really supportive of each other in the personal finance space. So talk to us a little bit about how you've gone out and got and collab with bigger creators in the space, because this is the question that I get asked a lot as it relates to me being a tech content creator and collaborating with some of the biggest tech creators on the planet. Obviously, you have a smaller channel, and I've seen you done uh, interviews with some of the bigger names in the space, like Daniel Braun, Ben Hedges, and some other creators. So how did you go about fostering those relationships to get those collabs? Yeah, it's definitely not easy, I would say. I think you're right in saying that the personal finance space is a little bit more like in tune with just talking with each other. I wouldn't necessarily go as far to say, like in the beginning, before I started doing my collaborations, I felt like there was not that was an untapped market in a way where people didn't really collab with each other. Like I knew that we all would talk like in the background, but nobody would ever like get on camera with one other creator or multiple other creators. So that's kind of what led me to start to do that on my channel in, the, in a series I started called Creator Conversations, which 
intentionally it's a very broad name in case I want to bring in other people from other niches. But right. it is really where I'm, you know, started out talking with credit card related YouTubers and that were smaller, but still like people that I had just talked to. And the first way that I started talking to these people was literally just by cold emailing them or DMing them or something like that to where I could just get in front of them and at least, you know, start a conversation. Because like you said, most everybody on YouTube is supportive of each other because we understand what the other person is going through. Right. Because YouTube is not necessarily, in a way, it's easy because we're posting videos and it's a very solo thing. Like you don't necessarily need a big team around you. You can build a business from it. But it's also, with that taken into account, it can be very lonely at times. So mm-hmm. I realized that for me, as somebody getting started in it and only being a year in, I could tell how it could get lonely for other people. And that's what prompted me to start reaching out to creators. And then from that, I was like, well, let me take this again, this small niche that I feel like has not been tapped yet in the personal finance area and start seeing if people actually want to come on a show with me. And I think that's the harder part about that is that, you know, people are always going to wonder how you can get somebody to come onto your channel that's bigger because the assumption is that the only value that they can get from you or you from them is that you can get subscribers from it or views or whatever it is. So that is a thing that I had to figure out is how to pitch that value proposition to somebody that this is Obviously, I'm not going to be giving you a ton of subscribers for coming onto my channel, but how do I still get you to give me an hour of your time to just talk? Mm -hmm. And that's something that took me a little bit to develop, but really what it came down to was what I just said. I knew that people wanted to talk to each other outside of YouTube, but nobody had done it in person. And it's a very lonely space sometimes. So I said, why don't you come onto my channel and we can talk about whatever you want outside of just this very small niche that we're in because we get trapped in that a lot. We get trapped in that cycle of making videos about the same exact topic because that's how you grow. But then if I pitch them the idea of, hey, you can come talk about anything you're passionate about and I don't care what the algorithm you know, cares about this video. I just want to you know, talk with you and have people grow a closer connection with you. And I'll do that through my channel. I'll take all of the editing. I'll take all of the recording. I'll do all of that myself. I just need you to join me for an hour. And luckily, it kind of just started snowballing. And as I started doing that and getting people on the channel, I was able to reach out to bigger and bigger names. And that's kind of where I'm, you know, I'm still trending is just whoever wants to come on can come on. And I just want to talk to everybody. So I'm not like going to say, okay, now that I've had somebody on with 200,000 subscribers, I'm only going up from there. Like I'll come back and I'll talk to everybody I know in the space that have a thousand, two thousand subscribers. Like I don't care. I just want to build connections within the community. I love that. I love how you just articulated that because that is the key. Like you said, as far as subscriber growth and things like that, you're not going to offer much to a bigger creator in terms of growth. But just giving them the platform to come on and have a conversation with you about the thing that you all both love and being able to do it in such an environment that fosters positive dialogue, because that's the other thing, right? You're not trying to have any gotcha moments. You're not trying to put them in any uh, trick bags or anything like that. You are fostering positive dialogue about the subject that you're both interested in, and it's going to bring value to both of your audiences regardless, because a lot of times audiences want to see the collab. And the Mm -hmm. other thing that I've noticed that you do very well is I constantly see you, Spencer, and other creators comments on their videos. You are everywhere. Like every video I watch, I I go to the comments, I'm like, there he is. And that's the thing. And I, I, I keep trying to tell people this, like, you have to be present in other creators' communities. And that is something that you have excelled at. Because again, I see you everywhere, man. You are all over other people's video comment sessions. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it does take like a lot of work. And, you know, one of the biggest things I've struggled with about that is that I never want to come off as somebody that's just always there the second a video goes live and is commenting and not providing any value to the community. Because there is a line to where you could be doing that. Like you just get the notifications, you comment, and you didn't even watch the video. Like for me, I really wanted to 
leave comments on these people's channels that show them that I really value what they're doing. And I watch the whole video. I see what's going on. It, first of all, informs me about what's going on in the space that I might not know about. But it also allows me to form a deeper connection with these people and then just show people in the comment section that like, look, if all of us creators can comment on each other's channels, then let's just foster that community with everybody. And I think that's one place where like in the personal finance space, especially this credit card space I'm very familiar with, like you see the same 100 people commenting on every single video. And I just want to be part of that community. But I think it is a, a very underrated way to like, it's not just an underrated way to help your own channel but it's really an underrated way to help other people's channels. Because like I said, it's a hard space to be in sometimes. And sometimes that one comment that you can tell actually came from the heart really helps you to keep posting your videos. So I just want to be able to do that in some small way with the community that I'm in. And luckily it's people have taken note of it. Like I've seen people comment. I have the same people commenting on each of my comments on other people's videos being like, man, why are you here? Like I see you in every single video, but it's really that I just love being a part of this community and trying to help it grow. Because one thing that a lot of us personal finance creators talk about is that a lot of us try to attribute the ideal that a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. I think the more, you know, just eyeballs that are on our topic in general is good for us. It, there's no like big competition between us creators. Like, of course, you don't want to make the exact same video as somebody else and you get upset when someone posts when you're just about to post. But at the end of the day, people are coming to us for our personalities and it doesn't matter if we're all posting the same content or we're in the same pool. Like everybody likes us for who we are. And that's important to just foster those relationships, I think. I'm so glad that you said that because a lot of times, you know, if a video has already been made out there, creators feel like they can't make that video because it's already out there. But you can still make a video that's already been made but the key, as Spencer was alluding to, is to make it in your own personal way. So that allows you to bring your fresh, unique perspective to the video and still provide value. Maybe you cover some things that the creator missed in their original video, or maybe you could clarify and add more value to the information that is already out there. But there is always a way to make content that is already out there. So don't feel like you can't make a video because it's already been made. No, you could just do it your own way, provide your own value, and still bring, and bring good content to the face. Definitely. Right. Yeah. And it's not like, of course, I'm not saying to go ahead and make the exact same video, just right, like you said, right. like, we're not going to copy the title and thumbnail, nothing like that. No. You need to make it unique, obviously, or people, first of all, might not even click on the video. But right. yeah, it's very important for people to understand. I've talked to a lot of people that don't want to get started on YouTube because they're like, I feel like everything's already been done. And it's like, well, maybe everything has been done or, you know, in your small niche, like maybe you've seen a video that you wanted to make but it really does not matter because you can twist it in whatever way you want to make it personally you. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. I want to ask you something that I kind of struggle with as a creator myself. And I noticed this in the personal finance space that you, you guys and girls are very open to sharing information with your viewers. I don't think I've seen any of you all that don't use your real name as your YouTube channel. <laughs> and that's right. something that I, I won't do because I don't want my real name out there like that. But you all have no problem in the personal finance space putting your real names out there. You guys are pretty open and transparent about your incomes, your credit score and different things like that. So how do you juggle balance or whatever word you want to use? How much personal information to share with a group of people on the Internet? You know, because, you know, with the Internet, some people are weird and things like that. But how do you juggle that? Yeah, that's that's actually something that it's kind of interesting to think about because, you know, for me coming into the space, I just knew that that's what people did was kind of be open with it. So that's why I got started doing it the way I did. However, now that you say that, I realize that a lot of channels as like yourself, for example, are not putting out all the personal information out there. I think the one reason that in personal finance in particular, you see so many people doing it is because it is personal finance. I think that that emphasis on like, there is a person behind this is really important. 
So for me, like I don't gatekeep like any information. I mean, when it comes to personal information, obviously I'm not going to show you, you know, my actual credit card numbers or my address right. and stuff like that. Like people's, <laughs> yeah, people are going to block those out. <laughs> but when it comes to actually sharing like our credit scores or our incomes and stuff like that, I'm on the line of like, I usually give people a range when it comes to like incomes or expenses and stuff like that, because I don't want all my information out there. Right. But you can, I mean, you can kind of guess, you know, from what I give people, but my credit scores, I'm not really necessarily scared of sharing with people because I think it's a good learning experience. And like I said, it kind of goes back to documenting my journey so people can go back and see my older videos and kind of see how things have changed over time. But yeah, I think it does come back to just the idea that there is one singular person behind this topic. And that is true in other niches as well. But I think it comes to the point in personal finance where you need that credibility and sometimes sharing your very personal information in a smart and safe way does give you some credibility. Like, I think one interesting case study of that, though, is like you mentioned Ben Hedges earlier, and he used to be the credit Shifu. His whole branding was that was his brand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, pretty recently he changed his name to Ben Hedges. And I think one reason you see him doing that and maybe other personal finance creators as well is because it grants you the ability to talk about other topics that aren't just so specific. So for me, that was one reason I did it personally was because I wanted to create a more personal brand outside of just credit cards. So I didn't want to you know, name myself something like the credit Shifu where you see me like only talking about credit. So it's interesting to see like someone like Ben, who's been on YouTube for like eight plus years, I think something like that, how he even has kind of gone that same route of sharing his his more personal information and stuff like that. And yeah, I just think it helps. I think credit, it helps a lot too, because you're sharing experiences with people. For example, like whenever I take trips and stuff like that, like I'm going to share most of what I just, I did on that trip because I want to show people what's possible whenever they use their credit cards responsibly. So stuff like that really helps. And maybe that is just a personal finance thing, but that's a really good question, honestly. Yeah. Again, I'm a little uh, hesitant to share personal information like that on the internet, but I understand like why you all would do it. Because again, when you're in a space like personal finance, like you said, it's kind of important to put that information out there so people can kind of have that experience with you or they can kind of relate their experiences to your experiences. And it just creates a more personal connection that way. So I can definitely understand why you guys are more willing to do that. But regardless of the situation, you got to do it, like you said, in a safe way. You do not want people on the internet knowing all your information. I don't care what you're doing. Just, you you yeah. don't want that. You don't want those problems, y'all. So just be careful with that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> this episode of Tube Talk is brought to you by vidIQ's channel audit tool, a sort of report card for how your YouTube channel has been performing. When you're in your YouTube studio, the channel audit tool can be found on the left-hand side once you've installed vidIQ on either your Chrome or Firefox browser. As long as you've authenticated your channel, clicking on Channel Audit will give you a bird's-eye view of your videos from the last 30, 60, or even 90 days. I personally use this tool to look for patterns with my content. What types of videos are currently getting the most views per hour? Which videos drove a lot of viewers to subscribe? What types of videos are my competitors creating and how do mine compare? What are the search terms bringing people to my channel in the first place? And if this is sounding like a lot of questions, well, that's probably because I ask too many questions. But that's why I love this tool, because I can get answers to all of them and more. You can access the channel audit tool for free when you download the vidIQ extension at vidIQ.com. Okay, so obviously you are a personal finance creator. I'm kind of dipping my toe into the personal finance stuff myself. We got to talk about personal finance. I know this is a YouTube podcast, but I promise you all, you will get value out of the conversation that's about to be had. So mm -hmm. pay attention, turn it up. Let's <laughs> first start about credit card versus debit card. Now, for the longest time, I'm going to be honest, I use my debit card for most things because I just didn't know any better. And it's incredible because I continue to use my debit card after I had situations where the debit card got compromised. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So one of the like the most common way that my debit card got compromised in the past was at gas stations. I would plot it into a gas pump. Unfortunately, there will be a skimmer installed by a hacker or whatever. And once you uh, insert your credit or debit card at the pump and it's a skimmer, they have your information. So then they can go at, they know your credit card information, your number, your security, so they can go charge whatever they want. This happened to me, I think, two or three times over the past 10 years. And it, it just got annoying because when that happens, then you got to go cancel that card, get a new card. And then if you have any information saved online about payment methods, you got to change all of it. It just gets real annoying. And sometimes it's hard to dispute the stuff as well because it's your money and not the bank money. So Viper finally got smart recently, and I started using more Apple Pay and Google Pay because they provide virtual card numbers. So even if those situations were to arise, my information wouldn't be in any danger because it's math. Now I'm just full out credit card everything because the beautiful thing about credit cards, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when you use credit cards, you are not liable for any fraudulent charges. And that is a beautiful thing because I know if nothing else, if my credit card gets compromised, American Express, Chase, Discover, they are going after whoever took their money because they ain't let nobody take their money, yo. So <laughs> yeah, they will be much more responsive to respond in a fraudulent purchase situation. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's one of the biggest things about credit cards that I try to tell people that are very heavy within the debit card world or the cash is king world, if you want to put it that way. It's harder for people to understand because they don't think that it's safer to use a credit card. And I think that, again, goes back to that idea that I was talking about at the beginning where people are just scared if they don't understand necessarily how to use these products wisely, it's probably a good thing to be because people do get in a lot of credit card debt. It's very dangerous. But I always try to tell people, just use a credit card like a debit card and just make sure you have all the money that you need to pay off that charge right away and you're good. But going to your point, you're 100% right that you are not liable for any transactions put on a credit card, which is why I shop with a lot more confidence than I used to. And the scary part about using a debit card and then having that become compromise is that you literally are not only tied to your direct bank account number where they have access to like, you know, now all of your funds, but you're also having all of your personal information outside of that linked to that bank account. And it's just like a, it's a bad spiral to be in, but a credit card. Yeah, you're right. You can just basically, they'll send you a new card right away, like similar to a debit card, but you're not liable for any of those transactions. And they only got the bank's money compared to your direct, you know, money in your bank account, which is the most ideal situation if yeah. you're going to get the fraud charge. Definitely. And I love the way that you said it because everybody who is in the credit card game that I watch has said the same thing that you say. You can use credit card, but it's all about using them responsibly. You should use a credit card just as you would use a debit card. So if you have a certain amount of money in your bank account and you know that that's tied to your debit card, you're not going to go over that limit because, first of all, the bank is not going to let you. But secondly, you can only spend the money that you have available to you in your bank account. So even if you have a credit limit that might be higher than what your actual available funds are, you don't go over that limit. <laughs> like you don't yeah. go over the actual available amount of money that you have because that is how you get into credit card debt. And the one thing that I love that you all say that I subscribe to 100% now that I know better is listen, when you apply for a credit card and they show you these yep. APR rates and it's like 20, 25, 28%, Viper does not care because yep. you will never see a percent out of me because I'm not paying you any interest. So it could be right. 30% APR. You ain't seeing a dime from Viper, yo, because when that statement date hits, guess what my balance is going to be on your credit card? Zero. <laughs> yep, exactly. That's such an important thing, too. And, you know, credit cards can be confusing, too, because there are multiple balances you can pay off. So people, again, might get scared in that, you know, that kind of analysis of, the, of those numbers. But at the end of the day, you're right. You have to pay off your statement balance by your due date, and you'll never pay interest. You'll never have a late fee, nothing like that. 
And that's the most optimal way to do it. And they also, of course, give you the ability to put, you know, auto pay onto all of your cards. So you never even have to worry about it as long as you're using them like a debit card and have the money in your bank account. Like I have way more credit limit across all of my cards than I do cash in my checking account that's linked to all of those cards. So if you are not responsible with your cards, you could get in really big trouble and you would have to pay those insane high APRs. But yeah, like you said, in all my watch me applies, I'm always like, I do not care what the APR is. You know, some people really do. And you might need to, if you're getting out of credit card debt, you do care about those more because you might be able to transfer your balance to a 0% APR card or something like that. But for the majority of people who are just using them normally, you don't need to worry about those as long as you're making your payments every single month. Yes, you all. So all my credit card holders out there, make sure you are paying you off your balance every month in a timely manner. Then you mm-hmm. never have to worry about the APR. Never. <laughs> right. Right. And don't just pay the minimum balance. That, right. Right. You can, and that'll help you to stay in good graces with the banks and you won't get a late fee or anything like that. But the trick to that, like the minimum balance sounds like, oh, good. I'll just pay that. And I don't have to pay you know, the full balance off, but you're going to be paying interest on everything between yeah. your statement balance and your minimum balance. So just don't get stuck in that trap. Yeah. Don't do that. To that point, I have another question because when you are paying a credit card, there's like two dates. There's mm-hmm. the due date and then the statement date. And as I understood it in the past, as long as I paid off any balance by my due date, then the statement date doesn't matter because everything is good by the statement date. And for those of y'all who are not aware, the statement date is the day that that credit card company reports your balance to the credit bureau. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you'll hear creators or financial uh, experts say that the due date is fine, but the more important date is the statement date. I'm not really sure why there's two separate dates. Like if there's a due date, well, actually, I know why there's two different dates, but if there's a due date and long as you pay off everything by that due date, then the statement date is irrelevant. Now, if you have a balance after the due date, then the statement date becomes more relevant because whatever that leftover amount is will get reported to the credit bureau. Right. Yeah. So the main reason that there are two different ones is exactly what you said, um, where the statement close date is what I usually call it. There's so many terms for it. The statement date right. is um, the date that the credit card lenders report your balance to the credit bureaus those being Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. So, you know, those credit reports that you will care a lot about whenever you're going to get a mortgage and stuff like that, that's where your credit cards are being reported to. But yes, the statement close date is when it gets reported to the bureaus. So the reason that it's so important to keep that date in mind, as well as the due date, is because that is going to be when your credit utilization is reported to the bureaus as well. And credit utilization is a very important factor in calculating your credit score because it takes up 30% of your credit score is your credit utilization. Okay. Let me stop you right there because yeah. I didn't understand this initially because like, I'm still pretty new to the credit card game, but I have a much better understanding of it now. But can you please break down what credit utilization is and what it means? Right. Yep. Yeah. So we're going to keep it really simple and I'll just talk about, we'll just say one credit card. You know, yeah. Obviously, it can get a lot more complicated, but let's say that you have one credit card with a $10,000 you know, or let's just say $1,000 credit limit. So that's right. the maximum amount of money you can put on that card every single month before mm-hmm. you've you've maxed out the credit card. Mm-hmm. If you put $500 on that card within that billing period, that statement period, that would be a 50% credit utilization because you're taking, you know, $500 over 1000 multiplied by 100 to get it into a percent form and you're at 50% utilization. Right. So the most recommended things you might hear like if you're reading blogs and stuff like that is to keep your credit utilization under 30%. However, if you watch a lot of videos in this space, you'll see that a lot of us recommend under 10% credit utilization. And then even like somebody like myself, I try to keep my utilization as low as like one to 2%. And that's where like the strategy comes into play of really understanding your credit cards. If you want just a very surface level understanding, 
you want to keep your credit utilization down to, I would say 10% is a good number. Um, and that's every single month. But that does not mean that if you have a $1,000 credit limit, you can only put $100 on that card the whole month because you can make early payments to your credit cards. And I don't know how deep you want to get right now, but <laughs> there, there are some strategies to keeping that in check. But the moral of the story is, yeah, it's a very important number because it does make up 30% of your whole credit score. So you don't want to be maxing your cards out. Yeah, so... I'm not going to get deep into the whole credit score and what everything determines right now, but the two biggest factors on your credit score, you all, are payment history and credit card utilization, what he just talked about. And basically, payment history means that you don't have any late payments on anything, especially credit cards. If you have a late payment, that can very adversely affect your credit score, and it's bad. It's all bad, so don't do it. It's just all bad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But the other thing, credit utilization is very important because, like Spencer said, I've heard, too, that under 30% is a good place to be. But if you want the highest possible credit score, 10% or less is what you want. Uh, you want right. 10% or less credit utilization. That will get you the highest possible credit score. Now, I've had some weird things happen with my credit score where, like, I remember one month I paid off one of my cards and my credit score went down. So I'm like, let me see what happens if I carry a small balance over to the next month. And, I, and lo and behold, it went back up. So the way FICO calculates credit scores is a little weird. I'm not going to get into it on this podcast because it's, it's not that safe. But... Mm-hmm. As long as your credit utilization is 10% or lower, I think that gives you the best chance to win in the credit game because that way you have the highest credit. And just so we can have a basic understanding of why credit is so important. And now you guys, if you follow me on Twitter, you've heard me talk about this a lot lately. You want to have good credit to buy cars, houses, hell, even some jobs even take a look at your credit scoring day. There is a lot that rides on your credit score as you get older and you try to achieve more and more adult level things. So you definitely mm-hmm. want to keep good credit. Right. Yep. And I do want to touch real quick on the idea that you just mentioned about the carrying a balance. The idea of carrying a balance to increase your credit score, I want to make sure that we're talking about not through to another statement, for example. Right. Like right. you don't want to be paying interest on it. That that's I think people get really confused and they're like, oh, I'll just leave a hundred dollars on my card every single month and never pay it off. Like, no, no you want no, to still no. pay it off yes. by the due date. But that's where the difference between the statement, close date, and the due date come into play. Always pay off your cards by the due date in full. But yes, having a good credit score is super important. And I think there are ways to get around it. There is the Dave Ramsey method of living. I think it's hard to do that. But I think that his teachings are great. Whenever you are in debt, I think you really need to try your best to get out of debt. But there are certain ways that you can learn to leverage credit and leverage stuff like credit cards or debt in a very beneficial way if you take the time to learn about it, which is what I was diving into so heavily and what got me into you know talking about it on a channel because that's like all I research these days, I feel like. Yeah, so there's a lot. Like I said, there's a lot of it. We're only scratching the surface of personal finances on this podcast. But if you guys go back and listen to some of the stuff that we've already talked about, uh, you're already ahead of the game. Yeah, I am 42, and I'm just now learning a lot of this stuff. So I feel like I'm kind of late in life on it, but it's better late than never because I'm probably in a better, a better position than people, a lot of people my age. Because again, the statistics are not good for most Americans as far as personal finances and where they're at and how they're handling it. So. It's never too late to learn this stuff. And you need to learn it if you want to have the best quality of life. And you don't always want to be struggling and stressed out about money. So figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with that. Yep. There are way too many resources on YouTube for you all to, or anybody to have excuses about not understanding how personal finances work and how to get your life in order for sure. Right. Yeah. I think even just a very basic understanding is what you're yeah. getting at too. Like you don't need to be going as heavy as, you know, for example, I'm talking about here. It's just right. very basic things can set you up really well. Absolutely. So I want to talk about something you touched on early in the podcast. So you've only been doing YouTube for a little over a year. You're at over 5,000 subscribers on your channel. But did I hear you correctly? Did you say you're a full-time creator? 
Yep, yep, you are right about you that. Gotta, we need to talk about this, Spencer. How did you do it? How is that possible? Yeah, it's well, it's such a blessing. I mean, first of all, I've only been I've been full time for about a month now. So basically, right after I hit five thousand subscribers, and that wasn't planned, obviously. Wow. But it worked out that way. And man, it's it's an accumulation of a lot of different things. Well, first of all, I'll talk about why I decided to take that leap because I think that's an important you know thing to understand. And I can tell you more about the uh, exact details of how it's possible, but. The reason I decided to take the leap was one, mainly because, like I said, figured out I like personal finance a lot later, started this YouTube channel as a hobby and figured I might start to make money from it like a year into it. Like I might make my first dollar. Obviously, that changed a bit quicker and I'm very happy about that. So that kind of at least gave me the push to be like, oh, well, I'm making income from this now. So I have the opportunity to maybe take a leap like that. I've always been somebody that's very kind of entrepreneurial in spirit, but never necessarily had a big opportunity to try something like this. But I graduated college in May of 2022. I've been working for a company for about a year, worked from, you know, for about six months after that, and then decided that, hey, I have a really big opportunity here in YouTube. I've listened to so many different channels talk about what is possible from YouTube, like the Graham Steffens, for example, who make their income breakdowns as a finance channel. And that's, I mean, they're making way more money than I ever even like want to make from YouTube. Like it's insane. <laughs> but, you know, I knew that there was at least a slice of that pie that I might be able to take if I really just gave it my all. And I really found that YouTube is something that gives me fulfillment and purpose in what I'm doing on my day to day. And I realized that I was constantly just more excited to wake up and work on YouTube than I was to wake up and go to work. And don't get me wrong, the company I work for is great. But I just realized I had a big opportunity in front of me. But the way that I do make money from my channel, which is the important thing, is mainly broken up into three different parts. As a personal finance creator, AdSense is actually pretty a pretty good chunk of money for us. I don't know what all the CPMs or RPMs, you know, the revenue and cost per mill or whatever it's called is across all channels, but usually personal finance is higher and kind of helped in me also like taking the leap to getting started on YouTube and then quitting because I knew that at least AdSense would be a decent portion of income. However, I never want to like rely on it because then again, it kind of goes back to the whole idea of like, I'm still technically working for a company if that's what I'm doing, because I'm working for Google at that point. They could cut ad rates, I guess, whenever they really want to. So exactly, I don't want to rely on it. So that that money in my income is usually what I kind of consider to be like my reinvestment money almost, where I like maybe hire out editors or you know, do this or that with the money. But the ways that as a credit card specific channel can make money is I make money from referring people to credit cards. And obviously, I'm only ever talking about credit cards that I actually use or know somebody very close to me that uses and I've done a ton of research on. So I will make you know very reasonable recommendations and people that do want to help support the channel for no additional cost to them can literally just click my link and use it. And then I get paid from those clicks, basically. So basically affiliate marketing, but for credit cards, right. which is a big way people make money on YouTube, obviously. Mm. And then the third way out of the three is really sponsorships. So that's become like a newer thing as you kind of grow in size. I've been able to, you know, start some partnership deals with a couple of companies that I, again, know the products of and use regularly. And yeah, those three slices of that pie kind of make up my full income right now. Speaking of sponsorships, I kind of took advantage of one of your uh, sponsor deals with Mac Rewards. I found up using your link. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, yeah, I'm using that app now and I, I like it. I don't like the fact that they have connectivity issues, but I think I know why they have connectivity issues. I think it's more of a security measure than anything else. Yeah, it's annoying that you every day you have to reload the app to get to get the credit card loaded. But I think, like I said, I think it's a security measure. So while it, it kind of inconvenient, you don't want anybody to have access to all their information. So it's kind of cool that they make you re-verify all that. But right. yeah, Mac Rewards is legit. I like that app. 
yeah, that's awesome to hear. I do really love them. You know, everything you recommend is going to be kind of looked at with a uh, fine tooth comb, I guess, from people who are like, you know, they're going to try to take it down a little bit because they know you're making money from it. But at the end of the day, like I said, I take sponsors that I really do like the product of. And every I use- damn bar, every personal finance creator recommends Mac Rewards. They can't, yeah. they can't always be lying. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. That's what I was going to say. I used it before I started the channel because I had so many people recommend it that I was watching. So right. Yeah. Every awesome. video I watch, like. Are you using Mac Rewards? Are you using Mac Rewards? Are you using Mac Rewards? I'm like, damn, okay. Right. Yeah. I, I get it. I got it. I got the message. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's a solid app. I, I'm enjoying the app. Uh, hashtag not an ad. Okay. Yeah. I, it's just an app that I use and I like. And apparently it is a big deal in the personal finance space and for good reason. So it's legit. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's pretty incredible that even a year into your journey, you felt the need to go full time. Now you are just doing YouTube only. I mean, you're still not working your regular full time job anymore, right? No, I'm completely, yeah, YouTube only as of a month ago. So all my income is coming from YouTube at this point or those affiliated sources with YouTube. <laughs> that is pretty awesome, man. Congratulations. That, that's an amazing Thanks. thing to be able to go full time in a year. That, that's pretty yeah. awesome, man. Uh, hopefully you keep uh, doing big things and uh, it keep getting uh, bigger and bigger for you because that would be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I love it too. I mean, like I said, this is what I find fulfillment in. So I want to keep pushing as much as I can. And also I should mention that I've had some really good role models in the space too, going back to the connections that people have within the personal finance space. Daniel Braun, who you mentioned in the beginning, has been somebody that's helped me a ton. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people who even you know are just here for the podcast for YouTube strategy, they might know of him because he's one of the fastest growing channels I've seen in general, but especially in this like smaller niche that we're talking about. And he's kind of mentored me through it. He kind of went through the same path of a year in or so he quit his job. Maybe not even that long. He, he did it quick, but so I've been talking with him forever and getting to have him on that interview last week was really cool to see. So I want to talk about that real quick because he actually came to you. He like he flew to you for that interview. And that's not something that normally happens. Well, maybe not my thing. Because everybody <laughs> I interview, I just do it over over the Internet. So mm-hmm. how did how did it work out to where he actually came to see you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, it just came from that building that relationship from forever ago. Like he commented on my channel when I think I had like 100 subscribers, which is really wow. cool to see because that's. That doesn't happen, I feel like, as much in other niches, like where somebody will support. And, you know, back then he might have had 20,000 subscribers and he's at like 85 now. But still, that's like, you know, you don't really see people doing that as much. And that was really cool. So from then on, we've really been communicating like on a pretty frequent basis, like whether it's texting or we'll get on Zoom calls with each other. And it just happened to work out this time around that he wanted to come to Austin. He's never been to Austin. And that's Mm. where I'm located. And yeah, he wanted to come down. And I was like, well, perfect. We can film our interview here if you want to do it just really worked out well timing wise and we filmed a couple other videos there as well but it was so cool to do it in person it's i do like the virtual and i you know i talked to you about this i do use Streamyard for it and it's great like i love the interaction that you can have with it but at the same time there's nothing that beats that that in-person connection so i'm hoping to do more of those and considering you know i'm a credit card channel and have a lot of credit card points because of that (laughs) I can kind of travel to people and that's Yo, really I gonna, helpful. <laughs> I was going to mention that. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a big deal for him to come to you given the fact no. that he does the same content. He probably has a bunch of credit card points. Uh, okay, that's the other thing about credit cards that I'm just now learning that I don't know how I just didn't figure this out until now. But if you use credit cards the right way, you can accrue a lot of credit card points and then you could use them. You could transfer them to airlines and hotels and travel mm-hmm. for free or at very reduced prices. Like, bro. Y'all yeah. need to understand how credit cards work and get into the game. It, it, it's crazy what you can do with credit cards when you use them correctly. It is amazing. Right. Yeah. I tell people all the time that even if you 
you know, even if you are just somebody that spends on these cards and you only get one or two, if you just consistently spend on them, who knows? In a couple of years, you might be able to book a trip with your family for free. If you want to call it free, I know some people hate whenever I say that, but <laughs> for free on points and um, that, that you would have never been able to take in cash otherwise. So I think it's just a way to, you know, increase the relationships you have in your life as well. And that's an underrated thing about it it's not just about like hey we're making money for ourselves that's cool it's like you can really create some experiences with people that you never would have before so i, I love the credit card game for that reason okay so i know this is a youtube podcast but this is my podcast so we're gonna we're gonna deviate <laughs> we're gonna okay. deviate so i would be remiss if i did not talk to you about actual credit cards i think i might have made a slight mistake because recently i acquired not one but two american express cards there you I go am, i am now a, an american Express gold and american Express platinum card holder it's but awesome. I've heard you talk a lot about Chase and Chase credit cards. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I might have made a slight mistake because I feel like the Chase points might be a little bit more uh, doable for the everyday spinner. But I'm still going to use the hell out of these. I don't care. But yeah. Uh, yeah. it's going to be good. But talk to us a little about, about how you feel about when it relates to Chase versus American Express and what's easier for like the everyday person. Right. Yeah. So me and Daniel talked a lot about this in our interview because it's one of those debates in the credit card game that this is probably never going to end because Chase and Amex are really esteemed as the two best lenders in the entire credit card game oh yeah one reason people hate chase is because they have very restrictive rules about who can get approved for their cards which is kind of what you're alluding to 524 (laughs) right exactly so people that don't know basically chase it doesn't matter as much for people that are like not going to get that many credit cards but they restrict you if you've gotten five or more personal credit cards in the last 24 months hence the 524 name they will not approve you for any of their credit cards so you have to like have a low velocity with them in order to get their cards and that's why people hate them but at the same time, I do think that they're really like the everyday person's card. They're just very easy to get value from. I mean, you can build a whole trifecta or a three-card setup that is super, super valuable with Chase for like a total of $95 a year, like with the annual fee on one of the cards. Two of the cards have no annual fees, and you can just get tons of value out of them. Mm-hmm. But the way that you kind of unlock more value and transfer out to travel partners, as you mentioned, to get these really crazy redemptions is you need at least one annual fee card. But you can do that with, for $95 with Chase. Amex, on the other hand, is more of the what people think of as the, like the luxury lender out there because they do a great job at marketing that, and that's really what they are for people. Like they are a luxury credit card lender, which is why I do also love their cards. I think Amex has much better. Well, in general, they have much better customer service than everybody. They treat their card holders really, really well. Like even outside of just just the customer service. Yeah. But they do have cards that come with higher annual fees, like the two you have, for example. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they co- that cost you some money. Yeah, a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but the the cool thing about them, and this goes for any annual fee credit, well, basically every annual fee credit card, every good one at least, is that you will have the ability to earn back all of the value that you paid for on that annual fee, and yeah. usually a lot more if you just know how to use the card correctly. Yes, that is why I think. You'll see people on the Chase side or the you know no annual fee side of the game really hate on Amex because they have these high annual fees and you have to use their uh, credits or what people call coupons these days um, <laughs> to get to get the value back. But both of them play a role and they can be very beneficial in the right hands. You have to kind of understand where you're at. That's why Chase is usually recommended in the very beginning because they're easier to get value from and they don't really cost money until you get that third card with them really. And then Amex is a little more, more expensive, but they provide a lot more upside than Chase credit cards will. For the most part. Yeah. Amex have more transfer partners, although Chase has a few too, but Amex has mm-hmm. a little bit more. And I think Amex points are tended to be thought of as higher value than Chase, even though Chase points might be easier to use. But mm-hmm. either way you go, I mean, as long as you know how to properly use the credit card, you are good to go. 
Now, the first card I got was the Emmett Gold because mm-hmm. I, was, I was looking at uh, what the cards offer. And I'm like, I spent a lot of money on groceries. Well, most of my money on groceries. I like to eat out. The mm-hmm. Amex Gold, where is that? The Amex Platinum, I'm going to be 100% with y'all. I just literally got into the flex. But yes. I do travel twice a year for work. So I am putting it to you. I already found it for a TSA pre-check and clear, which mm-hmm. Amex will reimburse you for if you pay for it using the Platinum card. So I'm definitely putting that to you later on this year when I travel. So if you know how to use the Platinum card, like Spencer said, if, if you know what you're doing with the Platinum card, even though it does have a high annual fee, you can get a lot of that value back and have the card literally pay for itself if you know what you're doing. So I right. plan on getting a lot of that value back, even though I'm going to pay like a lot for the annual fee. I'm going to get a lot of that back already. So yeah, you got to know what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah, it pains me. I talked about this too in the interview. It pains me to see when people, it usually goes for like, you'll see like uh, your dad or your grandpa using the MX Platinum card and they're using it for like every single purchase. Ooh. And if you're doing that, you're getting like 1% back on everything. And mm-hmm. it's not it's not a good card for spending, to be completely no. honest. No. It's only really, really good for like the travel benefits and the credits that come on it that you're alluding to. And yep. it does come with over $1,500 worth of credits, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And you're paying $6.95 a year to keep it. So yeah, as long as you use those credits every year, or at least half of the credits, you'll be getting positive value from the card. And that's what's important. Yeah, I don't imagine taking this MF Platinum out of my wallet much, if at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, and it's such a fun card to use too. It kind of sucks, but yeah. you know. Yep. Everybody brings it usually in their travel wallet because it does get you into the lounges and stuff like that. So it's cool to do that. Yeah, (laughs) Even though a lot of people are complaining that the lounges are being overcrowded these days, so we'll see what happens with that. But uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're fixing it. They're starting to charge people for their guests now. So people also are not liking that for the like really frequent travelers. But the people that think it's overcrowded, they, they do like that if they're solo traveling. So. Okay, so you are a personal finance expert. So what are one of or some of the biggest mistakes that you see people make as it relates to personal finances? I think on the flip side of like the biggest mistakes, I think one of the biggest things that I've done in my life that's made it very easy is to automate my finances to the degree that I can. I think that's a big thing that especially like people like my mom, for example, I've talked about this example before. She is somebody that still would refuse, even though she has credit cards, she would refuse to turn on auto pay because she wanted to see all the bills in paper form come to her, Mm. which I'm like, okay, I understand why you want to have control over your bills and you should be looking at your statements every single month. But without that, that safeguard of having auto pay on, you might be paying interest over time that you don't even know about, or you might be having missed payments, random stuff like that. And the same thing goes not just with credit cards, but with like personal finance in general. I started automating my investing. Whenever I did, you know, have a job, obviously with my 401k, that's done automatically for you, which I think is great um, that employers do that because it, it doesn't hurt you to see the money go out because you don't even see it come out. It just goes into your 401k usually. Right. But you can do that with your personal, like your uh, Roth IRAs as well. You can do that with your savings accounts. If you need to save up for an emergency fund, if you're not automating that money to go to that separate savings account, every single paycheck then you're doing yourself a disservice because a lot of people will see that money come in and think, oh, I can just use it now rather than saying like, hey, let me actually set some aside intentionally. So I think that's one mistake I see people make is not automating their finances. I think it's really easy to do. It saves you time and eventually could set you up to be super financially successful if you're automating your investments, for example. That'd be one of them for sure. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I feel like if you have like less time with the money and if like you said, if it's more automated as to where it's going, then like you're less likely to make bad decisions with it because that's basically what we're talking about. We're yep. talking about people making bad decisions because they have the money, but if you don't have the money, you can't make a bad yep. decision with it. <laughs> yeah, and the great thing is you 
you do have the money or you will have the money at a later date, which is the more important thing. It's like, you're not spending it. You are keeping it for yourself. It's just like, I think as a society, we have such a hard time with delayed gratification and I fall victim to that as well. But if you can delay that gratification when it comes to your finances as well, I think that's really big. If you can learn how to live off of less money, that way you can set yourself up for a better financial future. Like that's how you really win the personal finance game. And there's so many different resources that can tell you how to do that in a step-by-step method. And yeah, that's why I fell in love with it is because it really is a, there's a formula to it. You just have to learn how to do it and spend your time actually wanting to research it. Definitely. Absolutely. So you have been on YouTube a year. You've grown to over 5,000 subscribers and you are now a full-time YouTuber. So what advice would you give newer creators that want to be in a similar position as you? They want to be in full-time and quick as possible. Like, what would you say to somebody that wants to do that? Yeah, I think it, it starts with, like I said, targeting search terms when you're very small. I think that's like a very just broad answer that I can give is like, that's where I found my first couple of videos that really, really popped off for me whenever I was super small were very niche topics. Like I made a video about a credit card that had a new design on it and basically analyzed if it was worth it. And I got that out within like a day of the card being out. And like, so nobody else had really made a video on it yet. And that really helped me because I ranked in search right away for that card and, you know, got me a few thousand views whenever I had less than a thousand subscribers. And that really helps. But the biggest advice that I have for everybody when you're just getting started is first of all, that you have to get started. I know a lot of people get stuck in the analysis paralysis, basically of like, oh, I don't know, like, is this perfect? Is my you know channel banner perfect? Is, you know, they get stuck in that cycle. When in reality, if you just get started and post that first video, it kind of opens up the floodgates for you. At least it did for me personally. But then once you are started, I think that there are really three main things that YouTube's looking for, for the most part, when it comes to like how you actually make your videos successful. And that's one that you need to get people to click on your videos. So one thing I think it's really important to focus on is your thumbnail and your title. And I know that y'all do like channel reviews or, you know, video reviews where you're literally looking at sometimes just those things because it is that important. Yep. And I think that especially beginning creators, the way that you can tell the difference between somebody that just started and somebody that's been in the game for a long time is usually how good that their packaging looks in that title and thumbnail. And it's really weird to say, but like you would think that you could kind of pick it up you know, right away because it's just a small rectangular picture and you're typing out a few words, but there's a lot of research that can go into those and make them really good. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance to it for sure. Oh, yeah. And then, so that's the first thing I tell people to focus on. The second thing that YouTube is looking for is, can you get people to watch that video? So then once you get them to click into it, are they actually going to watch it all the way through? Or at least, uh, hopefully, you know, half of it at least, you know, try to get them to stay on the video as long as possible. And then that third wall, I mean, really, first of all, if you can just do those two things, you're going to be successful because eventually your, your channel will start getting recommended more and more and it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle. But that third wall is then, can you now get people to not only watch that video they just watched of yours, but watch more of your videos? That's the hardest thing that sometimes we have to deal with is like, okay, well, I just made a really great video, but now they're not watching any of my other stuff. So my average views per viewer or whatever that metric is, is, is kind of low. And then YouTube's not recommending me as much. So I think that those are like the, the three steps that I focus on is the packaging, the actual content, and then how do you build a complete ecosystem that people want to come back to and watch more of your content? Absolutely. Amazing advice, man. Spencer Johnson, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. If the people want to get more from you, where, where are the best places to follow you at? Yeah, I think my YouTube channel is the biggest place. Of course, it's just my name, Spencer Johnson. I think it's at Spencer Johnson official with the the new yep. tags that that they have. Yep. And <laughs> for that matter, Instagram, everything like that is at Spencer Johnson official as well. So if you want to find me anywhere, that's probably where I'm at. Absolutely. 
hey man, I appreciate you being on the podcast. So thank you for the time. Had an amazing conversation. I appreciate my listeners listening to another episode. You know your boy Viper will be back next week with another episode of Tube Talk presented by Vid I. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk brought to you by VidIQ. Head over to vidiq.com slash tube talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.